Anita, how's your mental health? <laughs> Questionable <laughs> at all times. You know this. Yeah. How's the mental health of your children? Um, also a little bit tricky. Can I tell you my experience in trying to find therapists for myself and my kids, Mel? Yes, please. Okay. This is how it goes. You ask around your friends and your family for a referral for somebody who's nearby. You finally find somebody who sounds like they might work for your family. You give them a call and you find out that A, they're not accepting new patients or B, they have a huge wait list. So you start over again and you ask people if they know anybody who would be a good therapist and a good fit. Finally, you find one, you go and you meet with them and you figure out that you don't actually like them that much. But it's been so much work to find somebody who you can go to in your area that you're kind of stuck with them. Well, do you have any ideas for how to get around this? Um, I do, because guess what? I've actually had some therapists that I have found on my own, which involves what you're saying. Sometimes I remember one time I was like three hours in the bathtub on my phone looking through yeah. websites. I was such a prune at the end. But I have also had the experience with working with BetterHelp and it was like, I, I don't want to say too good to be true, but because it is true, but it's like amazing because I was matched with my therapist within 24 hours. And you didn't have to go through all of that other ridiculous process of trying to find somebody. And here's the cool thing too, is if that person didn't work out for you, you can just switch and say, and it's not like you're committing to another years long search for somebody who you're going to jive with. It's true. And I lucked out or maybe just BetterHelp is really good at matching people together because I never had to change my therapist. I loved her. Perfect fit for me. And I know that some of our friends have used BetterHelp and they've had to change therapists and boom, same day can change. Easy peasy. You can ghost your therapist. <laughs> Get a new one. I love this idea. BetterHelp is one of our sponsors. If you use our promo code, trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN, you get 10% off your first month and we totally recommend it. Yes. Get some therapy. That's <laughs> trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN. Hi, Mel. You've had an adventureful weekend. I sure have. Tell us all about it. I had my first widow hang out of town in person. Would you go so far as to call it a retreat? It was an informal retreat put together by friends. Widow friends. Those are the only friends. Oh. Aren't they? I'm kidding. I see how you are. <laughs> um, I hear tell that you guys consulted a medium. Yay, it is true. True or false, true. And that you participated in a rage room i also true i <laughs> we're either like witches or pirates i tis true <laughs> we played in the rage room well i'm sad that i missed out on the fun the reason i had to miss out on all of the fun is because i'm going to texas this week for my little sister's wedding and had used all my babysitting tokens for that trip so i will be leaving this week to go to Texas. I'm traveling with my parents, which should be fun and interesting. My dad has no patience. He is always very focused on the destination and the activity. He's not one to wander or meander, so we'll see how it goes. I just want you to go to Pecan Lodge. 
I have it pulled up on my browser to remind me to go there. I just want to know also who decided your food choices for you because I don't think that parents should be trusted. No offense. <laughs> well, it was the wedding party who decided. Okay, so, that's okay. Yeah, that's that's who made the decisions. But I've scoped it out and I do have some free meals. And so if they won't take me, I will just like walk. I'll get there. It'll okay. happen. Okay. Good luck. So I hope you don't miss me too bad this week, Mel. I missed you when you were away, but I'm glad you got home. So do you want to tell me any more about your widow retreat? Yes, I went with three friends. They were all cancer widows, so I was the only non-cancer widow, and I thought it was interesting to listen to what they deal with day to day and some of the things that are common among long-term illness caregiver widows and yeah I think they're rock stars and the rage room was amazing I thought it was good it was nice to get away you guys had a bunch of dogs right only my dogs went because oh, other really? people's dogs got sick and so just so my weird. Three... I don't even think about dogs getting sick but I guess they do they get diarrhea <gasps> you do not want to drive with that no and sometimes you have to give them pumpkin what? Yeah. Does pumpkin work for humans, too? No. Do you need some? <laughs> do, you, do you just, like, open a can of pumpkin and they eat it? Yeah. Or they're like, really? You give them a few tablespoons, but you avoided the question, do you need some, Anita? <laughs> <laughs> I might need some pumpkin right now, but ew. I like pumpkin pie, but not straight pumpkin. Yeah. Okay. I learned something new today, like I do always. When we talk. Um, Mel? Yes? Should we remind the people listening about our Patreon? Yes. Join our Patreon if you want to. Don't if you don't want to. It's patreon.com slash WWDN. Help us keep the podcast going. We appreciate everybody who supports us. Also, remember to join the Widow Wives Club. We keep getting new members, and I love, love, love to see how people in the group come out and support each other. It's really actually kind of a beautiful thing, in all honesty. So on my drive down to southern Utah and back, I listened to Confronting Columbine. And it's a hard one. I thought it was amazing. Although I do have grievances with how they did the music because the parts where they were retelling experiences of what it was like in real time, in the actual shootings, they used scary music. And I think that that manipulates people's feelings. So I have problems with that as a as a music creator, but whatever. So if you are, if you're interested in listening to that podcast, it's very good. It's very detailed and they go into trauma and PTSD and recovery and and the survivors are, they were all saying that like 10 years was kind of the time where they started having things resurface so when their kids would start going to schools of their own they were having flashbacks and stuff and it's interesting the 10-year thing because our next guest talks about a 10-year milestone so um but one thing that I thought was interesting and and I've noticed this in our widow wives club with the feedback we get from our zoom hangs or or the club or things like that is that there there was also a teacher from a school shooting in 
Florida that was a guest on the Columbine podcast. And she was saying, I've done EMDR. I've done the therapy. I've done the things. And I can't even tell you how important community is for my healing. So even just talking to people that share similar experiences. And there are things common among them that are also common among you know, young widows or anybody that's experienced trauma, war veterans, abuse victims, where you find your kind and then you can identify with them and you don't feel so isolated. So I just want to point out that while we're talking about the Widow Wives Club, it's important to have community. So even if you don't participate and you just kind of lurk and creep, (laughs) it might be helpful for you. Yeah. Just to see that you're not going crazy or that you have feelings that other people have and you're not alone is really... Um, important and makes things just even a tiny bit easier. And I think all of us would agree that we'll take anything that we can get to make things a little bit better in the aftermath of loss. Yep. And if you listen to that Columbine podcast, just check yourself and make sure that you're in a good place because it could be difficult. It was difficult for me and I have no feelings. So there's that. Anyway, we would love to see you in there. So do that. And you can also buy us a taco at buymeacoffee.com slash widow we do now. Um, I'm just going to drop this on Mel right now. She doesn't know I'm going to say this. Oh, no. Are you but- pregnant again? Please, no. Please. <laughs> no. <laughs> there are some precursors required for that that have not been met. I really want you to give us a rating and review. And so I'm going to bribe you. Me? No. Oh. The listeners. <laughs> you. Okay. We're going to do a giveaway of an Amazon gift card for two random people who have submitted a review. Now, the only tricky thing about that is that we cannot contact you directly through your review. So you have to leave a review and then also you have to email us with the name that you left the review under. And then next, in two weeks, we will randomly look at all of the reviews and give you a gift card. Ooh, I like this plan. Two people. Mm-hmm. Guys, I know it's a two-step process, but I believe in you. And the thing that's awesome about an Amazon gift card is that our friends in Australia and Europe and Canada are not excluded this time. Like they were with the rope. I'm sorry about that. Really sorry. Shipping is hard. (laughs) Even if you have already submitted a review, if you just send us a quick email with the name that you already sent the review under, we will let you use that as well. So rating and review, and then drop us an email with the name of the username that you wrote the review under. Question. Yes. Because I don't think Spotify allows reviews. So you're talking Apple Podcasts? Are you talking our YouTube channel? Are you, what are you talking? Apple, just Apple Podcasts. What if people don't have Apple? Can they review our our YouTube channel? Um, no, subscribe? because that's too complicated right now. Rate, we want a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's all we're doing right now. One day, maybe we'll branch out and do something else, but baby steps for our baby brains. I like it. Okay. okay, cool. Let's do our patron shout out, shall we? We're going to start with our dead husbands. And our first is our secret dead husband. Widow, the weather is hot. or <laughs> Widow, the weather is cold. What? <laughs> There's one thing that needs to be told. I don't know. 
that the U.S. Postal Service lives on. <laughs> Was, isn't there like a post office like through rain and snow and sleet, sleet. and hail? <laughs> the the widows will... live on. We'll continue with Constance Dahlwalk. David Kelly. Don Satterwhite. Ivan the Meisner. Cat. We'll continue on with our widow wives and widow besties. First off, we have Amy. Just Amy. She's like Cher. Amy Sapp. Ashley Hahn. Mindy Holmgren. Danielle Catterberg. Dennis Brazo. Jenny Taylor. Jenny Wang. Kirsten Stromberg. Yes, a widow wife, Kirsten Stromberg. I'm sorry for the misconception. Laura Bradbury. Missy, Missy, Colorado City. Rachel Barbosa. Sarah Morris. Sylvia, the shore. Karen, the winehouse. Anna Tracy. Christina's Gambato. Christine Anderson. Diana Becker. Emily Thornton. Emily Toledo. Aaron Posick. Gabe Lozano. Ileana Bella Ruiz. Jamie Aliota. My friend who just returned from the Ringling Brothers Circus. Eleanor Rigby Randall. Jenny Barrow. Miss Monster Milo. Joy Kirsch. Katie Radcliffe. Kara Scara. Lori Farrington. Marie Hoffman. Marjorie Lewis. Mary McGowan. Sarah Kennedy. Shannon Helm. Sunshine Disco Haven. Tammy Schwartz. Tara Wallace. Valerie Packer. Excellent. And Glitter Wendy. Thank you for all of our supporters on Patreon. We really appreciate you helping to keep the podcast going. I'm excited about today's guest, Mel. Super excited. Shall we get to it? I'm Anita. I'm Mel. Two young widows trying to figure out. Widow, Widow, we do. Do now. Now. This episode is brought to you by the Meisner Family Foundation in memory of Elizabeth Meisner. Sometimes we assume that unless we had a huge life insurance payout, we don't really need to know anything about investments or even finances. But guess what? A little knowledge of finances is critical for all of us. Maybe your partner was in charge of that stuff, and now you find yourself making all the decisions. Maybe you're mad about that. Maybe I am. Nicole from the He's Gone But The Money's Not podcast is here to help. She tackles financial literacy by telling the stories of women and widows and finance experts and shares the lessons they've learned as certified financial planners. Whether you know a lot and feel confident in your financial decisions or feel unsure about all of that stuff, there is more to learn. Listen and subscribe to the He's Gone But The Money's Not podcast on all podcast platforms. This ad was paid for by Rock House Financial, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Mel, I can already tell we're going to have a fun interview. I know. I can't wait because the conversation has already taken a turn. A turn for the better, not a turn for the worse. It's all about tiny hands. (laughs) And that's all you get to know. Do you want to tell us who we've got here, Mel? We have Angel Collinson here. And Angel is a very fancy, fancy person. 
and also understands things that we are going through. So I'm going to let her tell a little bit about herself and then we'll get into the nitty gritty of grief and recovery and all of the things and probably more tiny hands. And who knows? Who knows where we're going to end up? It's going to be great. Yes. Angel, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, I'm so stoked to talk to you ladies. Where are you, Angel? I just arrived in Maine like an hour and a half ago from a cross-country drive from Salt Lake. I just packed up my life in Utah. You were here? I was in Utah. Is that we're in are? Utah. Yes. What? Yes. Oh, no. Oh, we should have done this podcast a week ago. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm no longer in Utah. I just left and packed up my life there. And now I'm in Maine getting ready to outfit my sailboat to start sailing around the world. Are you serious? Yeah. What? <laughs> yes. I told you you would want to talk to her, Anita. I know. I told you. <laughs> but this is like next level crazy pantsness. So, Angel, are you from Utah originally? Yeah. Yeah. So I was born in... Well, I was born in Salt Lake, but I uh, lived in the employee housing up at Snowbird my whole life. Uh, shared a bunk bed in a closet with my brother until I was 20 years old. Yes, you can imagine. There's lots of things that happen in your teenage years at sharing a bunk bed with your brother. <laughs> it's not ideal, but we made it. We're still really good friends. Um Maybe because of those years and helping each other sneak out and stuff. <laughs> and <laughs> don't tell mom and dad. No, it's cool. They know now. Um, yeah. So I grew up skiing uh, my whole life. Lived up at Snowbird. It's a ski resort just outside of Salt Lake City. Pretty much lived there my whole life off and on for the most part. What did your parents, did they work, like, what did they do there? So my dad worked in the snow safety department at Snowbird. So like avalanche control, you know, like how to control and open and close different runs, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, now he's working up at Alta. And then my mom taught a one-room homeschool with me and my brother and five other kids. So we'd go to public school down in Salt Lake in the fall. And then the winters are like so snowy and crazy that the Canyon Road is a mess and you can't commute down canyon reliably for school every day so my mom started when we were in kindergarten just teaching uh one-room homeschool and was like well I'll just see how long this lasts and she's brilliant and amazing and um somehow it like ended up making it all the way through all of our high schools so yeah we lived up in the canyons with all of our families and went to this one room one room homeschool that my mom taught all the way through. Man. Okay. So then you're like a skier because you have to be because you can't grow up at a ski resort and like opt out of skiing. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, maybe you could, but it's less desirable probably. <laughs> You'd really yeah. hate your life. Yeah. yeah. So I actually first came across you on the low pressure podcast, the skiing podcast. Man, my husband and I had just gotten married. This was in 2015. And so we spent the whole entire next season skiing like almost every day mm. it was the best mm. the best mm -hmm. I was like mm -hmm. we have to do this like when are we going to be newlyweds again never and let's do it so it was the best we skied so much and 
I hyper-focus on whatever I'm excited about, like, at all times. So, yeah. I mean, he sort yeah. of got sick of it because I was like, I need to listen to all the ski podcasts. I need new gear. I need to do this. I want to go to this thing. I want to do backcountry. Uh. So, um, and I started skiing a little bit later in life. I Well, I went when I was six, but then I did a ton of sports in high school and all that stuff, and so they didn't allow you to do skiing. Then when I went to college, I got the pass and then learned like a student pass and then now I love it it's like my most favorite thing ever so anyway that's where I came across your name and so I followed you on social media and yeah I had no idea that you had something in common with us until a post that you made several weeks ago and I was like you have got to be kidding so we can get to that in a minute but finish telling us like so tell us what you do professionally so that our listeners who are not familiar with skiing kind of understand how cool you are well to any listeners listening I don't think I would describe myself as cool (laughs) maybe very awkward and dorky um but what I yeah what I do for a job in a very in my dorky way is um so I grew up skiing and uh there's a so I'm a professional skier now there's like a few different ways to make a ski uh, living as a skier. But, um, what I ended up kind of finding my way, way into is, uh, professional big mountain skiing or, um, to anyone outside of the industry, professional extreme skiing. But basically my bread and butter is flying in helicopters up in Alaska and skiing big mountains. And it's really cool. Cause you get to, you know, we, we fly in, in the helicopters, um, we pre-scout our zones on maybe Google earth. If it's a zone that no one's really skied or flown in that much before. And we fly into like the bottom of these basins and we look up at these ridges and you get to like an artist almost like pick the way that you want to ski down the mountain. And it's really, really cool and really beautiful and really, um, challenging and it requires good photographic memory skills which I've had to work on and uh you don't want to take a wrong turn off of the side of the mountain no yeah yeah I mean and all of us have made that mistake the hard way before (laughs) hopefully not too big of a mistake but yeah so um now I film in uh ski movies so it's not like a I'm not a like stunt action figure in James Bond movies although that would be really cool yeah I know (laughs) one day but it's like uh just the endemic um in this in the ski world there's people that just love to ski and in the ski industry they make movies that are just made for skiers it's filmed with skiers it's just sort of this uh thing that perpetuates the passion of the sport and so I get to film in these ski movies and so my whole past 10 years really has been um, flying to these remote places and skiing down these different mountains and working with cameramen. And yeah, that's, that's kind of been my life for the past 10 years. And his face. Well, now I'm confused because now you're going to get on a sailboat. This seems like two different activities. I know. I'm asking myself the same. Do you know how to sail? I know. Well, I shouldn't (laughs) say no. I'll figure it out. Maybe by the time I hit the Philippines, it'll be fine. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I learned, I took some intensive sailing courses last summer, but in knowing 
the mountains uh, in the way that I do and how much respect they command and uh, how much power Mother Nature has. I really understand that I don't know much about the mountains and I literally know nothing about the ocean. Um, you know, even though maybe an outside perspective is like, oh, well, you already know a lot about the ocean. You've been blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, no, I know nothing about the ocean. So uh, I'm, I have what I do have is humility and a lot of it, <laughs> which is good. Might save my life. Probably will. Do you also have sunscreen? I have sunscreen. I, I'm actually, yeah, I'm a fan of like wearing long shirts and just like covering up all the way. I feel like we've ticked all the boxes. I think you're ready to go. So I'm ready. I have humility. I have sunscreen and I have long clothing. So, and I have a partner that knows more than me who I can learn from and pick his brain. So I feel like I'm set. Oh man, this is amazing. So yeah. I know very little, but I also feel like I have the tools to learn safely and properly. And I'm just starting that journey now. When do you leave? Well, let's see. <laughs> In a May couple 4th, hours? I'm looking at my phone. <laughs> She's like, 7 p.m.? May 4th. I was supposed to be here a week ago because we have about a month and a half of boat projects uh, before we can set sail. And we're we want to work on the we have another summer's worth of boat work um and we worked on the boat here in maine last summer and we want to work on it where it's warm and i can be in a bikini and probably hating my life because it's too hot now <laughs> but i've spent my life in cold and i'm like let's do the hot thing so uh we just have to head south to the caribbean the southern caribbean before hurricane season starts and that's around early june then you got to start watching for storms and stuff so the time crunch is kind of on uh, to do these projects and yeah, hit the open ocean. Does the boat have a, like an intact hull? Are there any holes? Like are th <laughs> those the projects? That's a great question because I knew nothing about boats last year. You know, we, well, we bought a boat. My boyfriend has, he comes from four generations of sailors oh, good. and it's like okay. their thing. Yeah. 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 I'm not just like going into this thing solo with no experience and no, like I am really relying on people that I really trust that know a lot. And my boyfriend comes from, yeah, a massive sailing family that goes back like four generations and back to Magellan awesome so supportive Magellan. yeah <laughs> who was killed in the Philippines I believe so remember oh well we okay I'm not going there be then. careful but do you have room for your tiny hands on the boat fortunately I have room for my tiny hands and the tiny hands for the tiny hands <laughs> oh, they were actually were like do they have they oars on the <gasps> I they could be oh, useful need teeny life raft oars they were sitting I, Mel, I don't know if you do this with your tiny hands, but they balance perfectly in prayer position on counters. Oh my gosh. I need to try it now. Now I need to go yeah. get my other one. You only got yeah. one. Yeah. Oh, you can't fly on one wing. No, you need both of them. So <laughs> Man cannot live on one tiny hand alone. <laughs> no, you need to. Well, you can, but yeah, prayer is easier, supported. <laughs> So yeah, anyways, they've been sitting on my, on our counter. In prayer position. In prayer position for the upcoming voyage. <laughs> um, and they got taken last minute. There's definitely, fortunately, room for the tiny hands. Okay, Long, Ooh, good. Very good. short. Yeah. Okay. Good, good, good. I know. 
And fortunately, my boyfriend is not weirded out by him. He thinks they're hilarious. <laughs> he is the right guy for you. I know. He's like our people. Yeah, totally. I put him through the ringer with some weird stuff. And <laughs> I'm, I'm like, okay, you can handle being on a boat with me. <laughs> for who knows how many days in isolation and I don't feel like we're gonna hit a breaking point so yeah that'd be bad Angel tell us how you are like us so how am I like you other than tiny hands other than tiny hands and a quirky sense of humor yeah so when I was 20 when I was 20 I was dating the love of my life at like hands down the most amazing guy I'd ever met. And we were like, so head over heels for each other. And I was like, oh, this is my person. Like, I finally found him, you know? Uh, and I just met, um, I we'd known each other not for that long, but it was one of those connections that we all have where you're like, oh, this is the person. And I had gotten out of a breakup not too long before. So I really wanted to take my time. And I was like, being kind of stingy with the relationship, but not in like a, not in a super holds barred way, but just in like, Hey, this matters a lot to me and I want to take my time. So it was like this really juicy connection. And, um, yeah, long story short, he was also a professional free skier and, um, we shared this like really awesome relationship of competing on the free skiing world tour together and doing all of these ski competitions and he ended up dying in in a competition in a ski accident and it was my first encounter with death I hadn't had a parent die I hadn't had a grandparent die like I hadn't had a friend die like all of a sudden the person that I was like sharing all my time with was that person you know and it was so um I mean, as I'm sure everyone listening and as you guys know, it was so life-changing and so tragic and also so beautiful and so empowering. Now, looking back, it's been 10 years now. Um, and I would say he and that relationship gave me more tools, like beautiful, beautiful tools for life than any other person or relationship, like hands down. And so I made a post about it uh, like a month ago, two months ago or something. Cause it's been the 10 year anniversary and here we are. Um, how old was he when he died? He was 25. Ugh. Man, that's so yeah. stupid. Yeah. So I mean, I follow some skiers on Instagram and just have kind of paid attention to death in that community. And it's not uncommon especially when you're dealing with avalanches. And I mean, it's it's just kind of part of the gig, right? Yeah. So yeah. as you have had people close to you die that are also your your professional peers and your friends, has it helped you or has it helped others, I guess, to do they come to you for support? Have you noticed that that's been helpful for you? I know it's like horrible to have people die, but how has that been for you? I don't really know what I'm asking. <laughs> Yeah. Just like... yeah, no, I think I know what you're talking about. It's sort of like, well, when you live in a high risk population, right, it all of a sudden puts you in this uh, hub of death, right, which our society, as we know, is horrible at talking about or dealing with, you know, and um, it was really beautiful in the time I 
messily found my way through it as best as I knew how and with zero instruction because we don't have any instruction about how to deal with this stuff. And, uh, but what happened afterwards was really beautiful. I, um, I, th- I think I instinctually knew how to reach out for support and how to uh, trust in my own self and how to le- lean into the grief as best as I possibly Like, I think I sort of somehow intuitively knew how to move through the grieving process and the right things to do. Um, and then what's happened afterwards has been really cool. I wouldn't say that a lot of people have reached out to me, but I would say that I understand the uh, isolation that happened, the self-isolation that happens when we're grieving. And I have been able to preemptively or um, I've been able to reach out and form these connections from these people that have lost especially women that have lost their partners that are hurting and you know when you're really grieving like you're not really reaching out to many people you know if anyone and so it did really help me connect to people afterwards in a way that I I hope it was helpful, um, but definitely really, I feel like solidified some connections and was very profound. Yeah. Did you feel like, because you guys were not married, you were boyfriend, girlfriend, correct? Yeah. Did you feel yeah. like you were not taken as seriously as the grieving partner of the person who died? Mm, that's a great question. I'm sure there's a lot of different answers and, and variations to that question. And in my experience, there's something that happens, I think, when you really authentically own your experience uh, and when you're just in it, when you're really present with your own experience. I think that is really visible to whoever is in your immediate circle and whoever's in the surrounding circles. And I think it's really powerful. Like I think as humans, we crave to see someone connected to themselves living their own truth, uh, whether it's painful, whether it's joyous, whether whatever it is. And I definitely was taken really, I get I don't, my perception is I was taken really seriously. And I had many, many, many people reach out to me and comment on my strength and that it was helping them through this experience or to a similar experience. Um, so that's my, my perception of it 10 years later. But I think that because I was really focused on doing the right thing for me and in honor of Ryan, um, that it was the right thing for the community or for what needed to be shared from my soul to others at that time. It seems like your community is mostly skiers, you know, like that's kind of who you mm-hmm. run with. Do you feel mm-hmm. like because that community, like you were saying, is a high risk community that there's a little bit more like the fact that you were given deference and you were seen and given a lot of like respect? I don't know that mm-hmm. I would say that that's exactly normal. Mm-hmm. For a lot of the people we talk to. And I kind of mm-hmm. wonder if it's because the community that you are within deals with that and has a little bit more understanding of relationships in that way, even if you're not, you know, married. I don't know if that made any sense what I just mm-hmm. said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it does. And I also think I was in a unique position because I was sort of a figurehead for skiing 
and I was seeing a lot of career success. Like I was kind of in the spotlight mm. already. Yeah. So people were already looking at me or looking towards me or, um, you know, there was, I was already sort of in some sort of limelight. And so all of a sudden when the limelight shifted from career success to how tragedy. is she dealing with death, yeah. right? How is she dealing with tragedy? I felt like I was actually given a really interesting opportunity to model what it looks like to be strong and to grieve at the same time, I guess. Yeah. That's awesome. Did you speak about it very publicly after it happened? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, you know, it was never something that I felt was taboo to talk about. And in contrary, I felt like it was really important to talk about as these things happen. Um, I, I don't remember where I had heard this, but something that was really influential that I had heard really quickly after Ryan died was that other cultures and that uh, Native American cultures often celebrate death as a graduation of sorts. And I remember thinking that or reading that not soon after his death and being like, that resonates for me. And if other people can celebrate death as a graduation and a celebration, then that's what I want to move towards too. That feels much more in alignment with how Ryan would want me to honor his passing. And, and so uh, that's what I'm going to go for, you know, for the people that are left behind. That's not, that's much easier said than done, but that was sort of my guidepost. I mean, like, okay, I really want to treat this as a celebration and a graduation as best I can. Well, that was one thing about that post when you posted about grief, about the 10 year I was reading that and was like, yes, she gets it. She's totally our people. And I loved that you were bringing awareness to it and not avoiding that grief is hard. Oh, my God. It's so it's the hardest. Somebody could come just walk into the room right now and say, you guys are laughing and smiling and like angels having fun. Like, yeah, her person died, but like she's fine. How can you explain to us like kind of what your journey was like? Because it is hard, but you also live with you can live with extreme joy and extreme pain at the same time what would you say to somebody who's like well you seem fine like it didn't seem like it was that hard because you're smiling right now I love that you brought that up because I actually got someone well one person that stands out I think there was more comments but someone on the this 10-year tribute video that you're referring to Mel someone was like you know, it's okay to be sad when your friends die. You don't have to be inauthentic and bubbly all the time. And it uh, really uh, like got at me for a minute because it is my 100% intention to be as authentic as possible. And the fact that they couldn't feel where I was trying to come from was hard for me. But then I was like, well, it it's probably because where they're at and where they're at with their loss of a friend and stuff. So with, yeah, with that, there's a quote that stands out to me that I posted this year. And I wish I could remember who said it. Maybe somebody listening can look it up or you guys can, but it's like, you can only experience the height of your happiness to which you allow yourself to experience the depth of your sorrow, you know, and that it's like the more we can, push ourselves or allow ourselves, expand ourselves to experience the lows and the highs, like they're mutually inclusive. You know, when Ryan died, it was like, I went through probably six months or more where I forgot what it was like to be happy. 
And I didn't realize I had forgotten what it was like to actually feel happiness in my body until I had this whole experience where I was just like, oh, this is what being happy feels like. And I had forgotten in my brain and in my body what that experience was like. And I was so grateful to remember that. And since then, you know, it's been such a long journey that has taught me more than anything else in my life. When I'm laughing and when I'm happy now, it's almost because when you see, not that I'm not saying I'm this person, but like when you see the, the wise elders that are, you know, they have the creases in their eyes and they're smiling and they've seen it all. It's like, they can hold it all. They get what it means to be alive and they get how beautiful seeing a baby being born is and watching a butterfly, you know, being birthed out of a cocoon or, you know, watching the natural wonders. And with that, because we live on earth and this is the way it goes with that is the death. And with that comes the beauty of knowing that a flower is so precious because it's not going to be last forever. And you're like, smell this rose right now because it's only going to last, you know, a week and then that's it. And there's something really beautiful about the uh, fragility and the temporariness of life, you know? And I was just like, man, when I got my face like smudged in the poo pile it was also (laughs) smudged in the roses at the same time but it just like took me a while to like reorient and be like oh right this is it this is our lot here you know and uh and so but and I also would really say that throughout this process I really felt like Ryan was helping me like I really felt like as I was grieving he would throw me some bones you know I used to ask him for shooting stars and four-leaf clovers and I have a whole collection of four-leaf clovers I probably have like 50 of them and I'd never found them before he died and I would also ask him for shooting stars and you know they were they weren't always delivered when I asked for them I don't think that's how these things work um if we believe in that but for what it's worth, I've got like 50 four-leaf clovers that I've found throughout my life and some amazing shooting stars at random times. You know, sometimes when I would be really stricken with grief and like in the dumps, I'd be like, come on, Ryan, just send me a four-leaf clover or send me a shooting star like right now on the count of three, <laughs> you know, just like sobbing, like send me a sign. And, uh, you know, it doesn't work like that always. And I'd forget about it. And then the next night I'd be talking to somebody and I'd look up and they'd be like the biggest shooting star I'd ever seen. And I'm like, oh, right. Do you kind of feel like that's a jerk move, though, for all the dead people? You're like, could you just do it when I ask for it? I mean, it's nice that you sent it three days later, but come on. (laughs) But you also died and I'm here and I'm sad. Come on. I know. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about, right? I just had one of those. I just had my four-leaf clover shooting. What, what, like, can, I, can we hear about yeah, it? Yeah. So um, the last vacation that we took as a family, we were – my husband was a swimmer. And so, like, the water, he was a lover of the water. And we went to the beach. We went to Disneyland, and then we went to the beach by Disneyland. And he wanted to find sand dollars so bad. So, like, we brought goggles, and he was like, I'm going to find sand dollars. And so he would dive down into the water, and he, we found, like, seven or eight sand dollars. And every time he'd find one, he'd jump out of the water and scream, I'm the winner! I'm the winner! I'm the winner! <laughs> and come show the sand dollar to everybody who was there. So that was, like, our family vacation before he died. So we just went to the beach in Oregon, and I was like, 
I need a sand dollar. Like, I need to be the winner. So Oregon is not really a place where you swim in the water because <laughs> yeah. it's too cold. But, yeah. like, I we went to this one beach and I was like, okay, like, I need my sand dollar. And I, like, got in the water and was wa- – I didn't get in in the water. But there were, n- like, n- no sand dollars. And then I saw – overfloating and then like the the like the wave came in and I was like no 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 and then it came back out and it was still there and I grabbed it and I was just like crying because I'm like I'm the winner I'm the winner he brought me my sand dollar it's really a profound thing so you guys will appreciate this probably all the listeners too have you guys ever read the book or listened to it it's also an audiobook journey of the souls no okay well uh, number one homework assignment also journey of the souls and then the sequel is called destiny of the souls and uh, so i read the this book journey of the souls like two years ago maybe and it really profoundly made sense and and changed the way that i interpreted my time here and this book, Destiny of the Souls, I've been meaning to listen to, and I was just listening to it on the drive out here across the country. So, you know, I'm most of the way through it, listened to it all today. And it in Destiny of the Souls, it really talks a lot about the ways that we feel like our loved ones that have passed on are trying to contact us. And so it's really awesome. But if you read Journey of the Souls first, it puts a lot of the sort of terms or concepts into context. So I would read them in that order, though Destiny of the Souls talks much more about when we feel like we're being contacted by people that we love that have passed on. I love that. I Yeah, it's so, you guys, it is so, so cool. Mel and I talk about that sometimes. I'm like, do you think it's real or do you think that we're just like... We're looking for the butterfly. Right. Yeah. Is it confirmation bias of, you know, looking at coincidences? Yeah. It's funny because we have uh, Anita and me and then one of our other friends whose husband or her partner died. He's a super, super creative musician. We had a text thread or or I was the go-between. It doesn't matter. But I was like, do you guys... Do you guys ever see butterflies? Everybody talks about seeing butterflies or, you know, there's kind of those common things where a lot of people see them. And and I even watched, I don't know if you've seen that show on Netflix that's about mediums and contacting the dead and all that stuff. There's a whole series on it. And so they even have some of that stuff in there. And this is after we watched that. It's like, how come our people aren't showing up in the normal ways? And so we've just decided they're doing more creative ways that are like more appropriate to them. Or I'm really curious to read that book because I'm super into like, the other side when my husband died I was like obsessed because I have to go down the ADHD hole right (laughs) yeah totally and it's like I want to know everything how are they going how do they see us like are you haunting me while I'm going to the bathroom what can you do like can you send things and it's I don't know that lottery tickets that's what we want (laughs) yeah that's so fascinating yeah you should read you should read these two books and just see if they resonate, right? Yeah, sometimes we read stuff and you're like, yeah, that sounds, that rings true or that doesn't ring true. And I read all, both of these and I was like, man, I really feel this stuff. Okay, I have a I have a question for you. Going back to what you were saying about the person who commented on your, the Instagram post and being like, you don't have to pretend to be happy. Do you think that it goes both ways in that there is an expectation that you should be sad 
and that you should not express yourself as happy ever either. And people feel like they're not having an appropriate grief experience or they're not being authentic if they are feeling happiness, if they are feeling bubbly, if they are finding joy in their lives, even if it's pretty soon afterwards. You know, there's these weird timelines that people, you know, arbitrarily put on our grief. But I feel like it goes both ways where, you know, you could say, well, actually, I really am feeling happy. And that's okay, too. I don't have to feel sad all the time either. Yeah, it's like, I'm so glad you brought that up. Because and I also think it goes with next loves, right? Or next relationships, like our ability to feel happiness or joy or love for another, right? We think, you know, there obviously there's like, grief that needs to happen. Um, we have to watch out for, you know, rebounds or, you know, like unhealthily trying to bypass this process by avoiding the uncomfortable things and then moving towards the things that are, you know, more pleasurable. But that doesn't mean that we're not ready to experience the more pleasurable things, I don't think, or that just if we do fall in love or if we do experience pleasure, that it's like not valid or right. You know, I totally am with you that I think there's a stigma of like, it should take this amount of time or it should look this way. And that's what is so crazy about death and this grieving process is it's like, it's so personal. And it's so individual and it, and it probably might fluctuate or, you know, there's like a myriad of different ways. And I think that unconditional support of each other and just in the showing up and um, really supporting someone in their own process of it and being a good mirror, you know, and being that good support network is so helpful because if you're like, oh, I'm not being shamed or for feeling happy or for falling in love or whatever, like I'm fully supported and someone is asking me the right questions and they're helping me to connect to myself and they're helping me to, yeah, just ask those right questions like that is what I believe support should really look like or could look like and um, because it is so complex and so varied and I mean as you guys know like there's no roadmap like there's no like handbook on grief like here's how you deal with the hardest of life stuff like that doesn't exist because it really can't. I mean, especially in all these different, you know, societies in the age of technology where things are changing. Uh, anyways, that was a long ramble, but I totally feel that there is um, so many ways to process this stuff. And when somebody is like, oh, well, you shouldn't be happy or you shouldn't be in love already or whatever, it's like learning to trust ourselves so that we can follow our own guidelines, even when it's messy and confusing and emotions can be muddled and murky. Like learning how to trust myself in this process was so, so huge. And, um, you know, no one knew what was right for me. And, you know, so, well, I guess on that same line, on that same note, Ryan got in his accident on day one of the competition and there was two days of the competition. Okay. So he got in this accident day one, I had already competed, you know, I was watching through my binoculars while he fell and sustained, you know, basically what was life ending injuries and he had to get life flighted out. And, um, I was faced with a decision of do I bail and drive to Reno right now, 
or do I stay and do day two of the competition? And there's no right answer to this question. There's not right. And people have a lot of opinions. So, you know, I, Ryan had been like, our whole relationship had been built on uh, supporting each other and each other's dreams. And one of my dreams for that year was to qualify for the Verbier extreme, which is kind of one of the, well, it's the most prestigious uh, extreme skiing competition in the world. And if I did well at this competition, I was going to qualify for it. So this was the most important competition in order to make this dream happen. So Ryan, you know, all year um, had been super supportive and, you know, we'd gone, I'd been doing really well. I'd been winning all these competitions. I needed to do well in this one. And he was like all about it. And he was so stoked. And he was like, oh my God, you're going to make this happen. You know, you're going to blah, blah. It's going to be awesome. So he gets hurt. Right. And I'm like, if I go to the hospital and he's in induced a coma and I sit by his hospital bed, I'm not going to go to Switzerland, which I don't really care about for me at this point. Like my boyfriend's in the ICU. Like, do I really give a shit about like my dream of competing in Verbier? No, (laughs) you know, Um, but it was this interesting question of, am I going to give my life and my dreams up? Am I, you know, not happiness at this time? Because happiness during, you know, whatever those five years is kind of arbitrary and hard to figure out. But I was like, do I give it up and go sit at the ICU bed? And I so deeply knew Ryan and I was like, Ryan would not want me to be sitting at his hospital bed when I could be sitting at the top of a mountain, screaming his name in high praises and being like, this one's for you, you know? And I just so deeply knew that because I knew him and I knew my relationship and no one on the outside knew him in that way or knew our relationship in that way, knew everything that it took, you know? So it's easy for people on the outside to be like, oh, you stayed and competed another day because you were self-interested and had your own interests in mind. And I'm like, no, that's not actually what it was about, you know? But I faced a lot of judgment for that from other people. And, you know, I stood on top of the mountain that next day. I called his cell phone. I left him a voicemail, even though, you know, his phone was out of battery and he was in induced coma and I just left him a message. And just so I could feel like I was talking to him, I just told him how I felt about him, told him, you know, everything that I knew he knew, but it was just a way for me to, to say all that. And I skied for him that day and I won the competition. And then I drove straight to Reno from there, you know, and I qualified for the Rivier extreme. And I was like, that's for you, Ryan. And this is for us. And this is my way of how I best know how to honor us. And I just think it is so interesting when we're in these situations and we're afraid what other people will think of our actions or what we feel is right. And in that moment, it was so clear for me and Ryan. I was like, this is obviously what he would want me to do. And like, I don't care if no one else understands, I'm going to do it for him. And I think that's so sacred, those bonds that we share with ourselves and that we share with those partners. And they're really important to honor. I love that. Because when you explain it, it makes perfect sense. But if you're just on the outside, you're like, well, gosh, she's not very, she doesn't care, you know. She doesn't care. Yeah, she's just going to keep competing while her boyfriend's in the ICU. You don't know what our life and our dedication and our goals were. You don't know what our relationship was like. So it's also so easy when you're young, too, because a lot of people are like, well, okay, this tragic thing happened, but she's young. She'll move on. It's fine. And and that's one thing that we're big about talking about here is, yeah, 
of course, like life moves on and things happen. But what about this middle? Like nobody talks about the middle. They just want us to get from point A to point B. I mean, right. Or point C. And they forget about point B. Yeah. Or, <laughs> yeah. And it, it, of course, like you said earlier, it's a reflection of where they are at in their own head and maybe their own experiences. And it's hard. So, I mean, you were 20 and dealing with this huge too, death, like life young. changing. Yeah. Like that's a lot, a lot to handle anyway, like especially at 20. So but you also seem like you're like 150 years old in your soul. Yes. <laughs> Have you always been this way? <laughs> well, I'm also a 12-year-old boy. Okay. So you're like in, me. Yes. In my heart, yeah. <laughs> oh my I haven't gosh. busted out any inappropriate jokes, but they're going to come out of any moment. <laughs> you talked about this process being really beautiful and teaching you so much and being kind of a sacred process. A lot of our listeners... We call them widow babies, like they're in the soup. It's just barely happened. And a lot of them, I would say, might hear that and think that you're full of crap and that you're crazy. How long did it take you before you were able to look back and say to see the beauty in it and to see the growth that came from it? Oh, that's a really great question. I think maybe like two or three years. Yeah, it was not. It was not immediate. It was not immediate. Even for no, your no. old soul? And young soul? <laughs> and young and, and all the dick jokes? Yeah. <laughs> no, no dick jokes or old soul has helped for like two or three years. Yeah. Well, I'm re- I really love that you brought that up because uh, especially time is relative depending on what frame of existence we're in right like if things are easy time goes faster I think and if things are harder time goes slower and I mean like I said I so I had this experience so I went to the desert six months after Ryan died and I I used to go to the Southern Utah desert a couple times a year, just as a check-in for myself. I would solo camp and just hike around. And it was just an opportunity to connect with myself. And I, Ryan died in March and I didn't go down in the spring. Like I was like, there's no way I can go down to the desert by myself. Like absolutely not. But by the time October rolled around. I was like, okay, I think I'm ready. So I went down to the desert and I wrote some letters that I'd just been meaning to write. I wrote a letter to him. I hadn't written to him the whole time that since he had passed and I used to write a lot. And so I wrote a letter to him. I wrote a letter to his family who, you know, I was in constant communication with, but I just, there was something about writing a letter to people. So anyways, I did these things that I'd been wanting to do since his passing. And, uh, and then I went and I wandered around the desert, which for me is a really medicinal and sacred place. And I, throughout my wanderings, I would just cried harder than I had cried since he died. Like, I felt like, um, I was, I was pretty good at processing the grief, but like, I also was kind of scared to let myself like really go there. And when I was by myself in the desert, like I just let myself go there, like all the way. And it was absolutely terrifying. And it was also like, you know, when you're doing something that is so scary, but you're like, 
wow, there could be, this is 100% the exact experience that I need to have right now. And it also feels like good in this weird way. Um, it felt so scary and so sad and so good. And and I started pulling out of the, while I was walking, I was like pulling out of the grief and I would just start laughing at realizing that I was going to be okay. Like I was actually going to be okay. And I actually started to understand what life and death was about. And I, I, it was almost like maniacal laughing, but it wasn't maniacal. It was just like belly laughs. I wish we could see this. Like, do you think about the birds watching you? And they were like, oh, Oh my, yes. (laughs) Somebody needs to get help for this woman. Or sometimes there was some people like way away. And I was like, I don't know what they're thinking about me right now. But they probably think I'm super crazy, which I am. (laughs) And it's okay. It's like you were saying before, like nature just takes it. And the the birds don't be like, you're crazy, woman. Like it just just takes it yeah you do you and they like crowed with you yeah totally they're like girl we get it and yeah after that like I was changed after this experience I think we probably all have stories that look different but maybe a similar way of relating um but I after that I realized whoa I have totally forgotten what it feels like in my brain and in my body to be happy And that experience helped me to remember what being happy felt like. And it didn't make it easier to feel happy, but it was like, well, they say when you experience a really traumatic event, I mean, with like PTSD, you guys probably have better language around it than I do, but you know, you can have a certain wiring synapsis that uh, can basically like short circuit or your brain can basically forget the pathways of what being happy can feel like. I think about it like in a ski course where things get really rutted out. You know, they say neurons that wire together, fire together. And so when you suffer a traumatic event and, you know, certain neurons like don't complete, you know, these networks together and you're reinforcing a lot of like depressed or super sad emotional pathways. That's what gets really reinforced. And it was like in this experience, all of a sudden there was like a healing in my brain chemistry. And they say that's actually why Prozac was created was not for long-term use, but for short-term use to connect these neural pathways to help your brain remember what it felt like to be happy. And I felt like that's what happened down there. I was like, oh, this is what it feels like to be happy. And it didn't solve everything for me. But all of a sudden I realized I've not been happy. Now I remember what that feels like and I've got something to aim for. And then it took a lot of work after that to just have the patience and to not give up and to remember like, oh, right, I can be happy. I'm not there yet. My life doesn't look like that yet, but I'm not going to give up on that possibility. And it sort of is like a gradual shift, you know, where all of a sudden you look back after like, I don't know, a year, two years. And you're like, wow, I'm actually happy like 50% of the time maybe. And that did not feel like, I didn't even know what that would look like or feel. I don't even remember what happy felt like two years ago. And there was moments where I would just randomly just start sobbing. You know, I just remember something and I would break down or I'd hear a song or I'd smell a smell or, you know, there'd be moments that would just like tear me apart. But it was, I started to just accept those moments, you know, and to welcome them as making that experience 
whole, right? Like this is part of the entire experience of being human and it freaking hurts so bad, but I really believe I can take it and I know that I can keep going. I have the best idea. Once you get back from your cruise around the world, we're going to start the Angel Collinson Go to the Desert <laughs> event and have, yeah, and have sort of a maniacal breakthrough. It's a thing, you guys. I know. You you're going to be the host. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> I've actually thought about this before, but there's something about certain natural environments that I think we're all drawn to. For me, it's the desert where you can just have your personal breakthrough with where you are in the life, in your life. It's happened. And so I've always used the desert. It's happened during different breakups. It's because the desert needs your tears because it's dry. Oh, that's right. I'm watering the <laughs> yes. cacti. Yes. And which... they're like, bring her back down. <laughs> We're thirsty. <laughs> we need angel tears. We need angel tears. <gasps> oh, my goodness. And with that being said, like, I really do think that healing retreats are so powerful, whether it's Esalon or just the container where you allow yourself to go and to process. I don't know what Esalon means. Be... Yeah. What does that mean? Es yeah. So Esalen is a retreat center. It's like a hoity-toity kind of, well, anyone who's listening to this maybe will disagree, but my my description of it would be it's, uh, it's a really beautiful retreat center just outside of the Bay Area, kind of just outside of Marin in San Francisco. And it's not, I don't think they're all super expensive, but they have different meditation retreats or yoga retreats or, you know, there's like all sorts of different kinds of healing retreats all over the world. Like you could Google a location that you're drawn to that's coming up for you right now and Google like healing retreat or you know, yoga retreat or whatever. Anyway, I'm holding I out for the think... Angel Collinson healing retreat. <laughs> Angel Collinson desert we retreat. We want the 150 year old <laughs> lady with the 12 year old boy experience. And the tiny hands with the tiny, <laughs> tiny hands. Okay. Well, this is actually great feedback because I do have all of those things and I can make that. And I've actually thought about it because it's been such a sacred experience for me that I want to share that I don't know if I'm ready to like facilitate yet, but it's cool just hearing you guys say that. So anyways, thanks. So Angel, you've had relationships, of course, since Ryan has died. How has that looked for you? How have you navigated having the space for Ryan in your heart and a new relationship? Yeah, such a great question. So when Ryan died, I was compelled. Well, so I was there when he died, right? I was in the hospital room. I helped his parents make the decision that we were going to let the doctors not give him CPR again because it was just, they were like, he's got a strong heart and we can keep, you know, trying to resuscitate him. And it, like we can keep going, but we're going to get exhausted and it's kind of going nowhere, you know? And I was with his parents when we, they were like asking us for permission to just not keep going, you know, it was this really poignant moment. And so we were, I was there when he passed, which was really, really cool. And also really surreal as you can imagine. And we didn't get hardly any sleep. And, um, I was driving across, but I was driving across the desert back to Utah that next day. And for some reason I was called to call a body worker who she does like energy work 
and she, I, she's, she's not a medium. She's not anything like that, but I just called her cause she was the only person that I knew that was uh, open to just weird stuff. And I was like, Gail, I just had the craziest thing happen. I told her about it. And I was like, I just really want Ryan to know that I'm going to be okay. And I know I'm going to be okay. And I don't know what he has to do or where he has to go or what it, the whole thing is now, but I just want you to tell him that he's, you know, I like, I just want him to go do his thing. And, um, it was this really cool conversation. And she was like, Oh, he's been wanting to talk. I didn't even know mediumship was like a thing at this time. I was just, yeah, anyways. So uh, long story short, it was this really beautiful conversation. And uh, she was like, you know, he's been really wanting to talk to you, blah, blah, blah. She shared all this stuff about Mary Poppins that she would have had no idea, but we had the, I mean, it was surreal. Like all of this stuff, I was like, she could not be making this up because it was like all of these inside jokes that we had. And she was like, you know, he just really wants you to know if you want to send him any text messages to just like in Mary Poppins, write it on a letter and, you know, throw it in a fireplace. And she was like, he really doesn't want you to put him on a pedestal. He hates being on pedestals. And I was like, that's so right. And he was super humble. And he was also the most magical man I've ever met. And I think this happens when we meet, you know, the love of our lives and especially when they get taken away. And it was so helpful for me to keep remembering this, you know, after this conversation that I had with this woman was because I was like, I'm never going to find another man like Ryan. <laughs> I was like, there's no way that I'm going to find somebody like that. But I had that, that memory of Ryan being like, don't put me on a pedestal. He does like, I was like, she was like, he really, really doesn't want you to put him on a pedestal. He's actually kind of angry about it. Isn't that kind of weird for a competitive skier though? Like, isn't that literally what you're trying to get onto <laughs> is the podium? But he wasn't competitive. That's the thing. He was so kind. I am confused so by this awesome. man. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, hey, me too. <laughs> Still to this day. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he he really didn't want me to put him on a pedestal. So I was like, hmm, okay. But it, this, I think, helped me reframe stuff. Um, but I was like, I'm never going to fall. I'm never going to be in love in the same way that I was with him. And I met another guy after that, you know, I've, I had multiple relationships and none of them were like Ryan, you know, but I was like really in love with all of them. And in that same session, she was like, he just really wanted to teach you what love felt like so that you could find it again in this life. And I was like, yeah, cool, Ryan. G yeah, buddy, no way. <laughs> Easy for you to say on the other side, I'm going to be heartbroken for the rest of my life over here. And I don't know what everyone's experience is going to be like. I do know that I never found anything that felt like Ryan until the relationship that I am in now. And it was actually really surreal, the characteristics that my current boyfriend, Pete and Ryan have in common and almost characteristics that I had forgotten about. And I mean, there's so, there's so many and they're so nuanced and they're such different people, but it had, I feel like after 10 years, I am in love in a really similar way. And I never, ever, ever thought that that was ever going to happen. I was like, I'm never going to find a man that good. I'm never going to find a man that treats me that good. I'm never going to find, you know, we all have our own versions of it. 
Um, and I don't know that we all ever will, but I do know that I was able to find good relationships and love after that. And I always knew it felt different. And then this one, I'm like, this I think is what Ryan wanted me to experience that whole time and wanted me to hold out for. And, you know, who knows, Pete and I might not last forever, but it is a really beautiful love and we're sailing around the world together. And it's like so harmonious and he's so understanding of my like hard ass nature. And there's so many such beautiful things. And I'm so glad that I wasn't closed off to this to finding this again or to experiencing this or to letting myself go there and to letting myself like be loved in this way and to feel loved, you know, because I think when we write it off, we close ourselves off to just opening up to anyone else ever again in that way. And, you know, I've had basically 10 years to, to get there and holy shit, now I'm living the life of my dreams and sailing around the world. And there are still mo- like, I forget what happened like a few days ago. Oh yeah. I went down to the desert again and I had this same thing that happened that one trip that I went down. I was driving down the desert road with 10 years ago after he died and Ryan always talked to me in animals after he died. And when I went down to the desert, there was this pronghorn antelope that walked right in front of the car and stopped. And I was in my car and I was like, cool, dude, are you going to move or are we having this thing right now? And the pronghorn antelope just like looked right at me and just stood there for like, I don't know, a minute, two minutes. So I was driving down with my friends in the desert a month, uh, three weeks ago or something. I mean, nothing like this has happened since then. This pronghorn antelope, we're in the same area of the desert-ish. This pronghorn antelope walks right in front of the car and stops. And everyone was like, whoa. That was, I was just like, okay, you guys, I have to ask you this question. Has this ever happened to any of you before? And they were like, no, 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 not I was like, have you ever actually seen a pronghorn antelope close that like isn't running or, and they're like, no, this antelope was just standing there staring straight at us. And I was like, what's up, Brian? And sometimes he checks in like that, you know, and, and I was getting ready to leave for the sailing mission and to sail around the world with my partner. And I kind of was like asking Ryan for his blessing before I left and I'd forgotten all about it, you know, and he still checks in. Like I still have this relationship with him and it, and it's so weird and bizarre and really cool and uh, unexplainable and I'm so glad to be open to experiencing like beauty and life in this way. And I just know that he is so stoked for me and that's what he wants. And like, he's a part of it. And I still experience grief and joy and sadness and memories. He's like still in it with me. It's not like I'm like, I've forgotten about him or it's gone away. It's like, he's somehow a part of it now in ways that I can't even explain besides telling like that antelope story you know what I mean that's so cool I love it it makes me have feelings and like I thought I had no feelings (laughs) anymore (laughs) (laughs) you know like sometimes you're just like I have all the feelings and then I'm numb yes yes I do know that yeah it's like surprising to me when I start to have feelings Mm -hmm. so I think that's so beautiful it like gives me Mm -hmm. chills which is I weird. I never I get chills. Too. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Oh, Angel, you are amazing. And just to listen to you talk, everything you say makes total sense. And it's like all very 
like out there and all in here at the same time. So also like side note, do you know, you know, Julian Carr? Yeah. I miss yeah. meet his dad. I'm his dad's a local musician here and we've done some gigs together. But every time I see Julian stuff on Instagram, I'm like, oh my gosh, please don't die. Please don't die. I know. I think there's this really interesting thing that happens when you lose, especially your lover. But I think probably anyone, any person that's close to you, where all of a sudden, like, you realize all of our mortality and, like, it's beyond our maternal instinct kicking in. All of a sudden, you're like, you're not, maybe you're not paranoid, but all you're just every, everywhere you go with everything, you're just like, wow, yeah, the, we could die. And that activity is super risky and you might feel like you're immune to the risks, but I can see it and I'm going to be the one left here. And you just sort of live in this state of anxiety. And I, so I was, so one of my re- relationships after Ryan, I was dating this guy that was a heli ski guide and, you know, he flew around in helicopters all the time, like did all this risky stuff. And long story short, basically we were in Hawaii together uh, and he was diving with another, he was friends with a bunch of big wave surfers, you know, like um, that were just high, that had a high risk tolerance. And they went out diving kind of right before sunset. I was on the boat on this like diving boat with them. They went down and then like the sun started to set and they didn't come up. It was this, um, it was this, this whole scene. I won't go into all the details, but I was like, I thought that my boyfriend was dead again. And I was like, what are the odds that I would have two people, two of my boyfriends in like five years die. And my, literally the thing that was getting me through trying to help me problem solve how to rescue them was the, the, the odds of me having two partners die in five years are really, really, really low. (laughs) So I'm with something is probably going to work out and it it ended up working out. We ended up finding them and um, they had gotten detached from like this dive flotation thing. Anyways, it was this whole thing. But it really drove home, like, just how, uh, like, it it reinstilled in me all the worry, right? And I was like, oh, my God, as a mom, you must be thinking about that all the time. Or, like, you might be thinking about this stuff all the time or with your partners. Like, it really made me realize how we can be so aware, right, of the fragility of life and the the possibility of accidents, you know? I don't have a, an answer for the balm for that other than to say like, we're not alone. You know, like when I, when Pete doesn't call me back after he's been out on the boat in the dark for a while or whatever, it's like, I get that panicky feeling, you know, all of a sudden you're like, wow. And I think that that it's probably something I'm always going to have. And I also live in communities where people do risky stuff a lot. It doesn't make it easier, but something that I think about a lot is after Ryan died, you know, I got that uh, question that you, that we get in these industries of, is it, is what you do, is what he was doing, is it worth dying for? And I just really think that that is the wrong question. And I really think that it is what makes you live. Like, I think that should be the question, you know, and that will probably always change, but like, is 
like, I think we should be doing these things that make us feel so alive and so infatuated with life and being here. And that to me, if my partner is doing that, or if I'm doing these things that make me feel so alive, that like, that's the point of being here. And that that has been more of a guidepost than like, are these things worth dying for? I have found that question not the most helpful. Yeah. So that was sort of a tangent, but I just think that that question has helped me reframe a lot of these experiences and a lot of my worries about people and their risk-taking and just their approach to life in general. Like, are they, like, are they really trying to help themselves like live and make the most of pleasure in their time here? And if I felt like Pete died out on sea bear again, you know, even though probably would defeat the odds, I would be like, that was why he was here. That was what he wanted to be doing here. And um, I would feel so much better about him you know, losing someone again in that way. Like I, like I want to support him doing that. And so I think that's just like a weird thing as survivors, because we're always scared of like losing somebody again, because we know the pain and we know it's real. I think a lot of times we feel like kind of like what you were just saying, like the statistics are in our favor, or I often feel like oh, my ticket got punched. Like I already did my hard thing. Like I don't get any more hard things, but we keep finding out that that's not yeah. how it works. Like. It's really like, no, you're going to have a 10 punch pass. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. If, if anything bad happens to Pete, I have an assignment for you and it's to find new love in 10 years. And this person really finds their joy in watching Netflix. <laughs> okay. I think she would be bored. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> she cannot have a three-punch pass. It's too many. In that book, Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Experience, they talk about that where it's like, well, you could stay alive and that would entail having a goal to just sit on the couch and you know you're going to attain it or doing something that puts you in flow and gives you that feedback to where you feel like you're truly living. So I'm just guessing she won't find a Netflix connoisseur only maybe a connoisseur and an adventurer (laughs) we'll talk about it in the desert next time we're there angels desert tears angels desert tears water the cacti yes mel i think we need to ask angel a special question this is a very important question we ask everybody this it's the most important question she's got her goggles on her binoculars very serious yes this is very serious angel (laughs) what is your favorite cheese? Ooh, probably. <laughs> I really like Gruyere, but I also like Ooh. a good brie. Okay. You have... You passed the test. <laughs> yeah. Is there a way that people can track your voyage around the world? Or are you guys like, is it something that we'll just find out about after it's done? Well, at this point, we're not going for like a race. Like we're not going for a circumnavigating race. We're kind of just going to spend time and storytell from these different communities and places around the globe. So at this point, the best spot is my Instagram channel. And... Uh, We're going to go work on the boat for another summer before we're ready to head really remote. So we're going to Curacao and then we're going to work on the boat a little bit more where it's hot and tropical and sweaty. 
and not cold. And so we're going to work on it for a little bit more there. And then we're going to sail through the Panama Canal and then out to the South Pacific from there. Um, I'm not exactly sure on our timeline, but we're like, we're starting the process now. We need a few more months of working on the boat. So if there's not a timeline for this, what happens when it's like time to ski? Yeah, I'm not sure yet. So we're basically, I'm going to, we're going to Curacao for the summer and then I'm kind of just taking it like a few months at a time right now. I have no idea exactly how it's all going to pan out. I moved my stuff into storage, but all my ski stuff is still accessible. So I don't know. If you don't ski this season, will it be the first season that you've not skied your whole life? Yeah. She's going to have to go pretend like virtual reality skiing <laughs> in her basement or something. A little ski machine. In the boat. <laughs> You're like, yeah. That like one little machine. Yeah. And, like yeah. make the noises yourself. Whoosh, 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 yeah. whoosh, whoosh. Like, oh, tree. There's yeah. tree. <laughs> exactly. Angel. This has been really fun. I have enjoyed it immensely. High five. High, High five. five. <laughs> oh, you guys are the best. We hope all of you listening have enjoyed Angel as much as we have. And we want to give her a tiny hand high five and wish her the best of luck on her upcoming crazy adventures. Remember to check out the Widow Wives Club on Facebook. You can find links to that by searching Facebook and also on our Instagram account in the links. Remember to answer all the questions. Also check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash WWDN. And you can also buy us a taco at buymeacoffee.com slash widow we do now. Until we talk to you next time, I'm Anita. I'm Mel. And I'm Angel. (laughs) (laughs) And we're just two young widows and a third person, a third alien from another planet with tiny, tiny, tiny hands. With mittens. And we're just trying to figure out widow Widow, we we do do now. This is my favorite thing to discuss with you. Tell me, what is it? One of my favorite things. I do enjoy tacos and cheese and dogs. This is about how you cannot pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a phone plan, especially when you're a widow, your person is dead, you might have kids, you might need another option, and you just want your phone to work, you want unlimited texting and service, and you want it to be like 25 bucks a month. It blows my mind that they have plans that start at $15 a month. That is so cheap. And the cool thing is, is it uses other 5G networks. And so you don't have to pay extra for that. And you still get great service. Yep. Anita and I have traveled all over and I have used my phone. So I highly recommend it. And my mom's even on it. When my dad died, we put his phone down to the cheapest plan, which is $15 a month. And I think my mom's on the $20 a month plan and it's so worth it. It's so much cheaper than what we were all paying before. So I highly recommend it if you're on a budget or not, who cares? Ryan Reynolds is in charge of the company and they send you free stickers with Ryan Reynolds temporary tattoos. It's kind of the best. So if somebody wants to sign up, what can they do, Anita? Go to trymintmobile.com slash WWDN. Seriously, you guys, such a great idea. Save yourself some money. And if you're worried about losing data or having any changes with your phone, not going to happen. They walk you through it. Everything's fine. It's the easiest process of all time. Again, that's trymintmobile.com slash WWDN.